Good, good. Well, if you'd like to follow along in your Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. So, um, you know, as I've mentioned several times as we've been going through the book of Acts, is that that word Acts, right? (laughs) A lot of your Bibles probably say Acts of the Apostles, but that's not the original title. Original title is just Acts, and really it's not just the Acts of the Apostles, but as we read the book, it's the Acts of the Apostles and the Elders and the Deacons and the Disciples and everybody else, right? It's just the Acts of the risen Lord Jesus by His Holy Spirit through His disciples, through you and me, amen? So when we see this, we're not just supposed to look at it as a book that's venerating the great Apostles. No, we're supposed to look at it as a book that's declaring how great God is, how great the Holy Spirit is in the life of believers. And that's why it's applicable to us today, because the same Spirit that was at work in Peter and Paul and Barnabas and Silas and all the rest is the same Spirit that's at work here today. Amen? Now, last Sunday, we left off right smack dab in the middle of the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 15. And we had just concluded looking at something that Christians generally call the Jerusalem Council. What this Jerusalem Council was, was the Apostle Paul and his missionary buddy Barnabas and the Apostles, most of the uh, 11 or 12 Apostles, the elders of Jerusalem, and many of the other important and prominent leaders in the church, they gathered together in Jerusalem to discuss a very important issue, which was the role circumcision should play in the life of a Gentile, and as well as the, the role the law of Moses should play. And so we saw how, at the conclusion of this council, last Sunday we saw how Paul, Peter, and James um, uh, arrived at the conclusion that everybody, Jew and Gentile, are saved how? Saved by grace, through faith. That observance of the Mosaic law had nothing to do with someone being justified in the courtroom of God. It had nothing to do with someone being made righteous. And Peter reiterated to all of the zealous Jewish believers at the council that human hearts are not purified by the works of the law, but rather they are purified by faith. And that, you know... And that was a lesson that wasn't new to them. In fact, Peter's like, you guys know that I delivered this message to you 10 years ago after my my ministry in Cornelius' house. And I told you about how me and and all of the guys who are with me from Jerusalem, we witnessed the Holy Spirit fall on the Gentiles, the God-fearers in that house, and, and, and how their hearts were purified by faith before they did anything concerning the law, before they were even water baptized, is is God accepted them solely by faith, right? And so Peter is reminding all of these zealous uh, uh, leaders in in, in Jerusalem that, that this is a truth which they once had known, but they had grown dull to it, right? Why did they grow dull to it? Because they lived in a culture in Jerusalem that was saturated with Torah observance, And because many of them had come from backgrounds that were very zealous for the traditions of their fathers. So because of that, how many know when you're in in an environment that doesn't quite fully line up with the gospel, 
You need to constantly be reminded of gospel truths. Any, anybody realize that? I mean, and that's true of everybody because no culture is in line with the gospel, right? So we all need to be constantly immersed, constantly renewing our mind so we don't kind of fall into the trap like some of these people in Jerusalem were doing, which were saying, well, wait a second, all these Gentiles, they got to get circumcised, they got to observe the law of Moses or they can't be saved. Well, after they had a bunch of debate and speeches by Peter and Paul were given, we're told that they all reached an agreement that the gospel did not require Gentiles to be circumcised or observe the law of Moses. In fact, it didn't uh, require even uh, Jews, uh, Jewish believers to do that. And um, so the sect of the Pharisees, the believers there who had said such a thing, they're wrong. But though they had arrived at that truth, they still needed to figure out how Jewish-Gentile relations would prosper as the gospel began to spread all around the world. And so they came up with very basic guidelines that seemed to be based off some of the Old Testament guidelines that was for all of the nations about how Jews and Gentiles could work together in the budding mission of the church. And so at the end, James, the brother of Jesus... He gets up and says this, and let's pick up in Acts chapter 15, verse 19. He says, Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from all things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So James is like, listen, you know, every city that this gospel is going to, it has Jews there. And these Jews, they have the law that's read every single week. So seeing that our, our mission is primarily, it starts to the Jew first and to the Greek, we need to have a sensitivity because we're trying to bring these two groups together in a way they had never been brought together before. So what are we going to do in our missionary strategy that, that centers around the Jews? Well, it's important, first off, to recognize that James is not here giving conditions for salvation, but rather healthy baseline instruction about what will foster fellowship between the Jews and Gentiles and help the Gentile believers to be in a position where they can more readily speak into the lives of the Jews who lived in their communities. Now, some of the things James said here, we think, wow, that's really common sense. For instance, he says, keep yourself from sexual immorality, right? Now, we know if you read the Bible, if you read the Old Testament, if you read the New Testament, something that's repeated over and over again, it's probably just as much as, you know, greed or covetousness is repeated over and over again, is keeping yourself from sexual immorality. It usually heads the lists of the sins of the flesh in the New Testament. Peter, James, John, Jude, and others are all very clear that all believers are to stay away and abstain from sexual immorality. But for James to bring it up in this council, in the letter that they will write, um, as, as especially something that these new believing Gentiles need to pay attention to, it makes a lot of sense. For one reason, one reason it does is because the Jews of that day abhorred the sort of sexual immorality 
that was flaunted or even celebrated in that Roman and Greek culture of the time. And many of the Gentiles, many of even the Gentiles who were coming to believe that Jesus was their Savior and Lord, um, you know, they previously were not ashamed of a lot of the sexual perversions that were just all over the place in their culture. One historian writing about the sexual behavior of just the male Roman citizens of that time, he says this. He says a, a real man dominated in the bedroom as he did on the battlefield. He would have sex with his slaves, whether they were male or female. He would visit prostitutes. He would have homosexual encounters even while married. He would engage in pederasty, sexual activity with adolescent boys. Even rape was generally accepted as long as he only raped people of a lower status. Okay, so that was what was culturally accepted in the Roman world at that time. And this, of course, all these things, right, we understand that that's sinful and destructive behavior. And James wanted the new Gentile believers to have the same revulsion for that sort of pervasive sexual immorality that the Jews had. You know, while the sanctification process for the believer takes the whole course of their life, James wanted new believers to know right away that that sort of activity was completely out of bounds, out of line with the Holy Spirit, out of li line with the new life they had been given, and that they especially needed to, to stay away from those sorts of sexual perversions. This instruction could also have ties to what was said about idolatry as well, because a lot of the prostitution in the Gentile world, you know where it happened? It happened at the pagan temples, right? When they would engage in the feasts at the pagan temples, a lot of times what accompanied those feasts was uh, temple prostitution. So staying away from sexual immorality a lot of times had tie into engaging in idolatrous actions. So that brings us to the other three instructions. He says stay away from things polluted by idols, from things strangled, and from blood. Now, I think James is largely re referring uh, to engaging in pagan temple festivals when he is saying these three things. Because we know that Paul later writes to the Corinthians that it's okay to eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols. But he also writes to the Corinthians that it's not okay uh, to participate in pagan feasts. Because to participate in the feast, he says in 1 Corinthians 10, is to consent to the demonic element that's present in those pagan feasts. But to just eat the meat that has been sacrificed, well, we know that he says all food is sanctified or made holy by prayer, right? That is why we can always eat what is set before us, right? I don't care what kind of voodoo thing they did to the food, I pray over it in the name of Jesus and that voodoo thing leaves, right? <laughs> but James, and the leaders at the council, they just wanted to especially emphasize that Gentile believers should make sure they do not do anything that hints that they are in some way endorsing the idolatrous practices of their cultures, especially when they're trying to be in fellowship with the Jews. So he's saying, you know, uh, stay away from things polluted by idols. And I think as they would have explained that letter, they would have explained that that meant especially it means engaging in festivals or feasts that are an, an, an idolatrous festival or feast. Now, many of the Jewish believers would have been appalled if their fellow Gentile believer had gotten meat from the market that had been sacrificed at a temple, even though that was basically where most of the meat came from. 
they would have said something like, we are supporting idolatry if we eat this. We are supporting those pagan temple economies. No way am I going to eat that. And you know what? I understand that perspective, right? I don't like supporting worldly systems either, right? If I don't have to, I, I would prefer not to, right? So there could be legitimate opinions and difference of conscience in these matters. How many know there's a lot of difference of opinions and conscience in the matters of Christians today in terms of what sort of things we support or what we subscribe to or what, you know, whatever it might be, right? Christians are all over the spectrum in terms of how much contact we should have with the systems of this world. On the far end of the spectrum, you have Christian separatists, right? Like the Amish, right? Separate from everything, <laughs> Disengage fully from the world system, kind of like the Puritists in Jesus' day known as the Essenes. Then you have all sorts of Christians all over the board who pick and choose what to engage with and what not to engage with, right? If certain corporations are promoting idolatrous messages they don't like, they say, well, I don't want to have anything to do with that corporation, right? I'm not going to use that search engine, I'm going to use this search engine, right? Uh, you know, I'm not going to go to this coffee house. I'm going to go to that coffee house. I'm not going to go to uh, whatever. I'm not going to go to Target or Disney or Amazon, Twitter, whatever. I'm not going to support this mutual fund because it supports these stocks. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be in this credit card company because of all the, the problems. Have. Well, everybody has different convictions, right? And you know what? There's nothing wrong with having a conviction like that. I admire People who want to just see their resources go to organizations that are not tied to worldly things. But at the same time, I would never say that Christians must all be in lockstep on those issues, right? <laughs> we can agree to disagree over those sorts of things. We live in a world where a lot of wicked organizations almost have basic monopolies over everything. And honestly, it's very difficult and exhausting to try to constantly figure out which institution is the most antichrist, right? It's really exhausting. <laughs> Unless you, like, go to In-N-Out and they have Bible verses on their stuff, right? Then you're like, oh, that's probably a good one. Yeah, I can eat it. <laughs> Chick-fil-A, oh, yeah, no. <laughs> but you know what? Honestly, I don't know. Maybe there's some bad things in In-N-Out and Chick-fil-A. The, the point is, is that, you know, we did the best we can. We want to support things. But you can understand in the Jewish culture that Paul is writing to, how they would even had stronger convictions concerning some of this thing. You're eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. Don't you know that's in some way supporting the economy of that idolatrous system? And so it would have been a huge, like, uh, you know, it, it would have been a, put a stumbling block in way of the, the, the fellowship they could have had. Well, what about staying away from, from things strangled in blood? Well, you know, Jews... They always cut, cut the jugular, uh, and they drained out the blood, as the law told them to do. Uh, this was a pretty big deal for them. And that's one reason why communion is so powerful. Because in the Old Testament, they were all, always commanded, you shall not drink the blood, you shall not drink the blood, you shall not drink the blood. Then what does Jesus command them to do? Drink my blood. <laughs> right? It's because they were never supposed to gain their life from, um, you know, any other life except from God. And who is Jesus? Jesus is God. That's where we gain our life from, and the life is in the blood. Well, um, you know, uh, is it sinful to eat things like, like blood today, like blood sausages? I don't think so. That, too, is sanctified by prayer. And if I went somewhere where they set that before me, I would have no problem eating it. 
but I certainly wouldn't go around eating strangled things and, 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 and blood just to do it, or, or especially in front of, you know, people who had convictions where that, that is really wrong, right? I don't want to put a stumbling block in front of somebody else, and that's what the leaders at the Jerusalem Council are saying. So, for instance, Paul, he, he brings out this point of, uh, you know, last week we talked about the importance of grace, right? Understanding the gospel of grace. That's what they didn't get, and they got it. But there's also the second point is graciousness. We can't just understand the point of grace. We also have to understand how grace makes us gracious. So what is graciousness means? It means that we do things that don't offend our brother and sister. So for instance, 1 Corinthians 8, 4 says this. Paul writing to the Corinthians, Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world. Right, he's like drawing from Isaiah, which says these things are made of gold and, and you, I mean, made of, 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 of wood, and, and they're nothing, right? They're nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. Verse 9, but beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. Verse 13, therefore if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. And then he goes on in chapter 9, and he talks about how he becomes all things to all people in various contexts, right? I become a Jew to those who are Jew. I become a Gentile to those who are Gentiles. I become all things to all men that I might win over those men, right? He, as a mature Christian, was saying, I know I have full liberty in Christ, but I'm going to act and live in a way to where I can minister to my brother till, till I get them to a point where they understand their liberty in Christ, right? So he says, for instance, this, in Romans, in Romans 14, verse 1, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Why? Like I said, a lot of the meat markets, all the meat was sacrificed to idols. So a lot of them were vegetarians, apparently. Verse 3, let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. <laughs> verse 13, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or cause to fall in our brother's way. He's saying you got to be the big boy in the relationship, right? Verse, uh, we're going to look at this on Wednesday, Galatians 5.13. The first half of Galatians is about grace. The second half is about graciousness. How do we live in light of grace? Galatians 5.13 says this, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Praise God for the grace that we have. But I'm not going to use the liberty I have to create some sort of stumbling blocks before one another or to somehow indulge my flesh. No, I've been freed from those indulgences of the flesh and I'm going to live in the the liberty by which Christ has made me free. So let's get back to the council. Acts 15, verse 22. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch. This is where Paul and Barn. this is where the whole episode had started from, you know, 250, 300 miles north of Jerusalem. The, the pharisaical uh, believers were up there and they're saying, you got to be circumcised to be saved. So they send them back where, where the, the problem had started with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them. The apostles, the elders, and the brethren. 
To the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying, You must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. All right. So let's look at <laughs> uh, what it says in verse 22. It pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church. You know, that's a remarkable statement. With the whole church. You know how often it happens that uh, two leaders reach a conclusion, and the whole entire church reaches the same conclusion, right? A unanimous consensus. That's not very often. That's almost like a miracle, right? We think some of these miracles in the book of Acts are, are really great and powerful, like lame men getting up and leaping, and, and Peter's shadow causing people to be healed, and, and Paul getting up after he is stoned. I think this is just as great a miracle, right? That everyone comes into agreement about the gospel, especially those who are former Pharisees. Like, they finally agree with Paul and Barnabas. The whole church is pleased to send this letter to them. Well, um, <laughs> uh, I, I, I think uh, it's interesting to see what happens next. They choose two leading men from the church in Jerusalem to accompany Paul and Barnabas. They choose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas. Now, the first guy's named Judas. In Hebrew, that's simply Judah. His name is Judah, and he's known as son of the Sabbath. I don't think you could choose a guy who was more Jewish than a guy who's literally named Judah, which the name Jew comes from, and, whose name, and who also had the nickname son of the Sabbath, right? So if you want to see this Jewish guy going up to Antioch declaring the message that the Jerusalem church had arrived at, how everybody is saved by grace and not the works of the law, I think Judah, son of the Sabbath, was a pretty good choice, a leading member of the church there. And also, right, the other guy's name is, is Silas, who we'll get to in more uh, in a moment. But what is important to note is that two prominent Jewish witnesses and prophets from Jerusalem are sent to confirm the written word. Having two witnesses to confirm things is important uh, in the Old Testament. Now, there are actually multiple people in the New Testament who are said to have carried important letters to various communities. These two guys are not the only ones. For instance, in just Paul's letters, I'll just name some of the few letter carriers. Stephanus, Fortunatus, Achaicus, Titus, Phoebe, Epaphroditus, Tychicus, and Onesimus. All these were men and women tasked by Paul and the Holy Spirit with the important task of delivering a letter to a community and sometimes even being the ones who read it and knew how, with what cadences to read it and, and how Paul intended it to be read. They would read these letters to the community. So why am I bringing up all these letter, letter carriers? Because in one sense, 
all Christians have the role of being a letter carrier. We are all supposed to be like Judas, Barsabbas, and Silas. Look what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 2. He's talking to all the Corinthians here. You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. Every believer is a living epistle, right? What does that mean? It means we're all telling a message. We are all in some sense, right, by bearing the name Christian, we are all in some sense witnessing for who Christ is. Right? That's why the third commandment is so important. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. It's really, the better translation there is, you shall not bear the name of, 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 of Yahweh in vain, meaning how you are a witness for who God is, uh, you should uh, take that extremely seriously. And that's basically what we are. We are living epistles. We are living letters of the Lord. We are being watched. Did you know that? We are all being read. <laughs> People observe what we do. They hear what we say. They look at what we post. They see what grabs our attention, our desires. They see what our priorities are. They see what we give our allegiance to, right? Make no mistake, you are being read by a lot of people around you. Everybody is. And here's the thing. Most people in the world will never read the Bible till the day they die. You know that? But you know what they will read? And the way they will gossip about? Christians. They'll read you. So if they're not going to read the Bible, but they're going to read you and me, I think we need to do the best we can by the grace of God and the work of the Spirit inside of us to be conformed to the Bible, right? Because we are a living epistle. Let's be people who carry the good news like um, uh, uh, Judas, Barsabbas, and Silas. Good news that makes people rejoice. Look what, look what happens after these guys with Paul and Barnabas travel up to Antioch in verse 30. Acts 15, verse 30. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they, this is talking about all the Christians in Antioch, rejoiced over its encouragement. Now, can you imagine all of the Christians in Antioch during that period of weeks or months that Paul and Barnabas are gone down at this Jerusalem council, right? The men from Ju Jerusalem who had just been there basically said, Three quarters of you guys aren't saved, right? You all need to get circumcised. And I think some of the Christians in Antioch there who listened to these prominent men from Jerusalem, they would have had a temptation during that season to doubt their salvation, right? They might have had thoughts that crossed their mind like, um, you know, am I saved or not? Maybe I, I should go uh, to the Jewish quarter and maybe I should go through the circumcision process, right? Maybe I should become in stricter adherence to the Mosaic law just in case I'm not really saved. What if the apostles, uh, Peter and James and John and, and Matthew and all the rest, 
What if they side with those guys who are up here rather than side with, with Paul and Barnabas? Well, anyone who was having doubts over the course of that period of time, when Paul and Barnabas are gone, I'm sure they were at the edge of their seats when all the churches gathered together. I'm sure everybody was like, I got to be there and hear what the letter has to say today. And when they read what the letter says, it says that there was great rejoicing, right? <laughs> they are so glad to see the principle of grace that had been preserved, that they had not been believing a false gospel, but that it was instead the Pharisaical Judaizers who had been preaching a false gospel, and that those Judaizers are the ones who repented because it pleased them, too, to send this letter to them. They were absolutely right with God. They were purified by faith alone, and that letter caused them to rejoice. Now, one thing they also would have understood was that this was not simply the decision of man. It wasn't like, oh, the apostles said this. No, it was directed by God himself. The letter says in verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. You know, a council of church leaders doesn't make something true. Only God makes something true. There have been a lot of councils through the last 2,000 years of church history with a lot of good truth in them. But just about each and every one of those councils has had a lot of stuff that wasn't necessarily good or true. And how do we discern the difference? Well, by the word of God. Whenever leaders of the church have come together, and I think probably the two best ones that pretty much all denominations adhere to is something called uh, the Nicene Creed. We, a few years ago, went through that on Wednesdays, right? Because they're just basically taking phrases from Scripture and stringing them together, what we confess about who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And then that was in 325 A.D. And then another council uh, a little later, I think in the 420s, known as the Council of Chalcedon, where it defined that Jesus was fully God and Jesus was fully man. And again, just stringing together statements from Scripture. So we as Christians, when we look at some of these councils, we can say, okay, um, am I just confessing the truth of God's word or am I trying to get into the politics of the church of some era or some age? And, uh, you know, we don't want to do that, right? We want to just stick with the basics of the word of God. And that's what they had here. They had the Holy Spirit that was leading and guiding the apostles into all truth. And so we can absolutely take everything they said to the bank. So let's pick up in verse 32. Now Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So here we see these great eminent men from Jerusalem, Barsabbas and Silas, are also prophets. We're told that they exhorted the people there with many words. Uh, another translation simply says this. They exhorted the Christians in Antioch with long speeches. <laughs> right? These guys were giving prophetic words and long sermons. And that was a great strength to the church in Antioch. You know, long sermons were something that was really prominent here in the early church. When Luke records his sermons, he's just giving a little five-minute summary. But we're told how long the sermons were. For instance, 
when Paul is in Troas in Acts chapter 20, it says that he was preaching all the way to midnight, right? He was preaching several hours in that sermon. What happens? A guy, he fell asleep during his sermon and he fell out a window, right? But the point is, is that you guys think I preach a long time, right? No. I don't preach that long. You know what? I might preach long for an American. But if you go other places in the world, you go to Africa, they'll preach four or five hours to you, right? So, yeah, just, just you know, don't worry, about, don't worry about how long I preach. Now, here's the thing. What is essential about preaching and teaching is that it stays focused on the Scripture, right? Look at verse 35 again. We're told that they were teaching and preaching what? The Word of the Lord. You know, in fact, seven times in the book of Acts, when it says they're preaching and teaching, you know what it says they're preaching and teaching? The Word of the Lord. What is the church supposed to teach and preach? The Word of the Lord. People are supposed to leave church gatherings having been fed the word of the Lord. Now that might sound basic and clear, but unfortunately there are many churches in the world today that don't spend a lot of time teaching the word of the Lord. Or if they do, it's usually really, you know, sometimes watered down, right? It's like a watery milk. It's not really a meal. And you come away anemic wishing you had a little bit more of the word of the Lord. You know? So we want to make sure that we stay focused on the word of the Lord, right? It should be a steady diet of the full counsel of the word of God. We should be glad to hear long words from prophets and teachers like Judas and Silas and Paul and Barnabas and all of the other leaders there who were at Antioch. We're told that they didn't just speak long words, but that they prophesied. They joined with the other prophets there. We looked at in Acts chapter 13 how in Antioch, it was full of prophets and teachers, people like Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene from North Africa, Manaean, who had been brought up with King Herod. Well, here's the thing about prophetic ministry. Prophetic ministry is good. We're not, it says in Thessalonians, do not despise prophecy, right? But it also says this, it must always be tested and it must always be judged. So for instance, If someone has the gift of prophecy and delivers the prophetic word, that doesn't mean it should just be uncritically received. Rather, we must test it and we must judge it by the scriptures and and by a lot of other different criteria to make sure that this someone's not just blowing smoke. Right. And I will say that, you know, we have two temptations in our world today. One is to despise prophecy. And the other is to never test and judge prophecy, right? <laughs> and when that happens, prophecy can get sloppy and it can be, get fleshly. But on the other hand, when there is true prophetic word given, it can be great encouragement. After it has been rightly tested, it should be treasured. We run well by the prophecies that are spoken over us. For instance, Paul told Timothy to continue to fight the good fight of faith in accordance with the prophecy that had been spoken over him. Those prophecies encouraged Timothy on his journey, right? Why? Because he had tested and he had judged them and they had, you know, confirmed, right, to to be true prophecy, right? Okay. So what happens after this time of ministry in Antioch when the church there is strengthened and rejoicing? Verse 35. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city, 
where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. All right. So before we get to that contention between Paul and Barnabas, let's first notice that there is a desire from both of them to visit the churches they had previously established. Why? Two reasons. To see how they were doing and to strengthen them. And in fact, even though they don't do it together, they do just that, right? Barnabas goes to Cyprus, which was the first half of their mission journey. And then Paul goes to Galatia, which was the second half of their mission journey. So indeed, they do visit all of the churches they had established. Um, you know, uh, watching over the spiritual progress of these new Christian communities was a big priority for these guys. They knew that Jesus commissioned uh, them to make disciples of all nations, right? They weren't, they weren't commissioned just to preach and to baptize, but, but, but to make disciples, to make sure they were growing in the Lord, to make sure they were growing in grace, to make sure they were developing in the character of Jesus, to make sure they were walking as he walked. You know, we saw a few Sundays ago how, how because, um, you know, because Paul and Barnabas were so firmly convinced that believers need to be watched over and taken care of and discipled, how when they reached the end of their first missionary journey in the city of Derby. On the eastern end of Turkey, it would have been really easy for them to just go down to Tarsus and then go over to Antioch, and they could have ended their journey. But what did they do instead? Anyone remember? They retraced their tracks backward and made the long trip home, and they went to all of the cities and all of the communities who had treated them horribly, right? The communities that had excommunicated them the communities that had beaten them, the community that had stoned Paul and left him for dead. They went back to these places. Why? Because they were so um, passionate that the new believers would be taken care of and looked after and discipled and strengthened, and they needed to establish elders and leaders in the church who could look over people after they were gone. Well, now they want to go back to these same places where they were treated so horribly like before. <laughs> It's amazing, right? What compels them? The love of Jesus Christ. That's it. All right. Now, though both Paul and Barnabas had the same desire, they had different strategies in mind. Barnabas wants to take his cousin, John Mark, right? But Paul says, that's, that's not a good idea. This guy, this guy uh, left us before, right? And so... They have such, uh, you know, strongly different opinions that we're told they have a sharp disagreement. A sharp, anyone here ever have a sharp disagreement? You're in good company, right? Paul and Barnabas had sharp. <laughs> I'm sure their voices were raised a little bit, right? Each one is unwilling to compromise their con conviction concerning what the missionary journey should look like and whether Mark should accompany them. And ultimately, they realize the only way forward was to agree to disagree and go their separate ways. Barnabas, we're told, took John Mark back to Cyprus with him. And, um, you know, 
Mark had already been there before. He had helped establish the churches on Cyprus. Mark also had family there alongside of Barnabas. It was a good place for Mark to continue to grow in his giftings and the crucial role he would play in the early church. Now we know Barnabas, his real name was Joseph, right? He was just called Barnabas Bar-Nabas, son of encouragement, because he was such a, a man who was always encouraging people. And here again, we, we see the gift of encouragement coming out of him, right? That, that he uh, is especially encouraging his younger cousin in the gift and the calling and the anointing that he sees upon him. You know, Mark would become one of the greatest leaders in the early church soon after this, right? He would not only write the gospel of Mark, but he would become an important co-laborer of Paul. That's what Paul says in Philippians, that Luke and Mark are his important co-laborers. Um, he also becomes like a son to the apostle Peter. Um, he becomes not only just a co-laborer with Paul, but someone who's very useful to him in ministry. So, for instance, this is what Paul says at the end of his life in 2 Timothy 4.11. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark. He's talking to Timothy here. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. <laughs> was he useful to Paul for ministry in the first missionary journey? No. He was so bad he didn't want to have anything to do with him again. But now he's saying, the one guy I want you to go grab is Mark because he's really useful for me in ministry. Why? Because the son of encouragement, Joseph, his cousin, came alongside of him and says, God's not done with you yet, right? And though Paul doesn't see the gift, calling of God in your life, I do, and I'm going to develop it. So let's go back to Cyprus, right? He didn't give up on him. Well, we know that, that Mark was also a great encouragement to Peter. In fact, we saw in Acts chapter 12, remember when Peter's arrested and thrown in prison and the angel delivers him? Remember why, one reason why the angel delivered him? Because there was a prayer meeting going on. You know where the prayer meeting was? In Mark's mama's house in Jerusalem. They had been part of that inner circle probably even before the resurrection. Mark knew these guys really closely. And, and so he uh, sticks with Peter. Tradition says that the gospel of Mark is the testimony that Peter told Mark to write down. And so uh, Peter, uh, Mark becomes like a son to Peter. Uh, uh, I, yeah, Peter, yeah, Mark becomes like a son to Peter. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 13. She who is in Babylon elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Now, is he talking about his literal son here? No, he's talking about his son in the faith. He's talking about Mark, who had just been this great co-laborer with, with, with Paul. Mark, uh, you know, who, who is a, a great co-laborer with Peter, <laughs> right? Nobody else in the entire New Testament has talked like this, just Mark. Well, how about Barnabas? Do we hear anything about him later in the New Testament? Does, is Paul just done with Barnabas? No. In fact, six years later, he writes 1 Corinthians. This is what he has to say about Barnabas. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5. Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord? So that's like James. And Cephas, that's Peter. So all these guys were married, right? Um, and, uh, and, but... But Paul wasn't, and he goes on and say, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? So these guys, you know, they were in full-time ministry. They didn't have to have other jobs. Paul, though, he was a, he was a tent maker, right? And, and Barnabas apparently was too. He had to financially support a lot of his ministry as well. These other guys, they not only were supported in ministry, 
but their wives were supported in ministry too. And Paul is making an argument in the case that that should be the case. He, he goes on and he quotes all these things from the Old Testament that, that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel, right? And how God commanded that, that, you know, that be the case. But he's saying, listen, you know, me and my good buddy Barnabas, who I'm holding in high regard here as an example, um, you know, I'm, I'm defending his ministry. Though they had had a sharp disagreement, he didn't allow ill will or um, bad feelings to fester, right? You know, it is so important that we do not hold grudges against other Christians. That we do not hold unforgiveness against other Christians, right? <laughs> it amazes me how often people hold on to silly, stupid, dumb grudges in the church, right? Years, decades, right? I can't believe the way that person looked at me that one time. I can't believe what she said to me. I'm so offended, I'm never going back there again. And you know what that is? That's the devil. We need to get over stuff and forgive people. Paul says in Ephesians 4, don't let the devil get a foothold through your stupid unforgiveness, right? Through your stupid suspicions. Through your stupid frustrations over people. That's the devil. You know, um... So Paul understood that. So he's like, okay, we can agree to disagree. And look at this. Now instead of one missionary journey, there's two going at once, right? God works all things together for good. And Barnabas, yeah, he's my good friend. Mark, he's my good friend. We just had a little disagreement over that one time, right? And, uh, but we got over it. Now we're co-laborers, we're co-workers, and, and the gospel's doing great things in all of our lives because we don't allow the silly, stupid frustrations and unforgiveness and bitterness to take root in our life. So seeing that Barnabas was gone, you know, with Mark, he needs a new buddy, right? So he chooses one of the leading eminent men who had come up from Jerusalem council with him, which was Silas. Silas, his Hebrew name was Saul. They're both Saul, right? <laughs> uh, so, you know, the Saul buddies go out on the second missionary journey. And this is a great choice. Uh, Silas was also a teacher. He's also a prophet, just like Paul and Barnabas were. He's also an early member of the Jerusalem church, just like Barnabas was. And so when they visited all of the churches in Galatia and beyond, Silas could speak for the Jerusalem church and make clear that Paul was not at odds with all the apostles in Jerusalem, regardless of what any people from Jerusalem had previously told them. He could interpret the letter that they would read in those congregations. On top of that, Silas was a skilled writer. In fact, you read the New Testament, and we're told that he co-writes at least three of Paul's letters. First and Second Timothy are not just by Paul, they're by Paul and Silas. Same with Second Corinthians, who's also a secretary. I'm sure such a skilled writer like Paul really enjoyed having another skilled writer who could serve in that purpose with him, Silas, right? And on top of all that, we knew Silas was a man of great faith who didn't mind facing trials. And guess what Paul faced on all his missionary journeys? Lots and lots of trials. We'll see next chapter in Acts 16. Immediately, you know what they face? Trials. They're thrown in prison. They're put in chains. And what is Silas doing? Is he moping? No, it says that he's singing with Paul at the midnight hour. He was a prophet. He was a teacher. He was a writer. He was a man of faith. He was a man from Jerusalem. He was the right man for the job. So you know what? Barnabas and Mark, they had their great ministry in Cyprus. Paul and Silas, they have their great ministry in modern-day Turkey, Galatia, right? And God works all things together for good. 
And you know what? We can sometimes agree to disagree and never hold grudge against somebody, right? I know there's people, right? But you know what the devil says? No, you should, you should hold on to that grudge, right? You should hold on to that unforgiveness, right? You should never get over it. No, no, the Holy Spirit says uh, you can get over it, right? What happened when, when Jesus, his closest, you know, one of his closest people, one of the 12 disciples came to the Garden of Gethsemane, right? And, it, and he kisses him. In fact, the word there isn't just kiss. It's a long kiss. It's the same word for kiss that's used of the father when he sees the prodigal son and he profusely kisses him. It's the same word that's used for the sinful woman who's profusely kissing the feet of Jesus. Judas gives this long, profuse kiss to Jesus to betray him to the hand of sinners. And what does Jesus say? Friend, my friend, my friend, why are you doing this? You know, if Jesus could show such love to mo the most heinous betrayer, why can't you and me show love to those people who get on our nerves, right? So let me conclude by reading verses 40 and 41 again. It says, But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. You know what's so cool? The church sees this sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas, and yet, you know what they do? They entrust them to the grace of God. <laughs> right? They say, praise the Lord. God is going to bring something good out of this sharp disagreement, right? His unmerited favor is going to be with them on their journeys, and we're just going to entrust them to God, right? And you know what? His grace is always sufficient to fully help us in walking the Christian life, to fully help us in fulfilling our assignments. And I tell you what, we just can commend everybody to the grace of God, right? And one way we're commended to the grace of God every week is we partake communion, amen? If anyone here not received a communion element, go ahead and raise your hand. We'll get one into your hand. 